Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 17, but our main uh, portion that we're going to be looking at is, starts in verse 13, but just trying to add a little bit of extra context. Hopefully all of you guys know that uh, Pastor Press and I have been wading our way through First uh, Peter, and the main theme that we're hitting on is holy living in the midst of suffering. Holiness is one of those broad themes through every chapter of, of um, 1 Peter. It talks about holiness, holiness, holiness. And first, uh, the first chapter in particular echoes one of those great commands from the Old Testament where God says to us, his people, be holy as I am holy. And so it starts, 1 Peter, he, he starts off with, be holy as I am holy, and he starts unpacking that. What is God doing with our holiness? What's the grand scheme? And he starts talking about how God is building himself a home, and he's not building it out of normal building materials, he's building it out of people. And because God is holy, he needs a holy dwelling, and so for us to be part of that home and God to be building his home out of people, we must be holy as well. And so God is making living stones uh, where his people will, he will live with his people for eternity and his people will be with their God for eternity as well. And so these living stones must be shaped for God's house. And as we all well know, holiness doesn't come naturally for any of, you, any of us as sinners or as a result from living in this world. God uses the gospel to transform us into those living stones. And then he uses suffering and hardships also to help shape us. And contrary to the prosperity gospel, you know, that promises that obedience to his, uh, God's word will bring ease and, and ease of life and prosperity, uh, contrary to that, God promises that obedience to his word will bring hardship and pain. But he also promises us that that hardship has purpose and meaning to it and that it produces holiness, holiness. And so the path of holiness is the path of suffering in this world. Suffering and hardship, again, I want to be very clear, is not the result, this pain and suffering and hardship is not the result of our own bad choices and decisions and, uh, and sin itself. It's a result of living obedient and holy lives to Christ, holiness or suffering and hardships that result from, uh, from being obedient to God's word. And God uses that as part of the purifying fire that roots out pride and arrogance and selfishness and idolatry and all forms of sin out of our lives. I was reminded of this truth this past week uh, in an unlikely place on Facebook. Uh, one of those rare, rare glimmers of rays of light that comes shining through all the darkness and gloom and, and a horrible doctrinal you know, positions and statements and stuff on Facebook. My Aunt Kay posted something this last week, and, and if, uh, looking at her life, she has had an abnormally difficult uh, life in all sorts of ways, and not just recently, but perhaps especially recently. Uh, she has three sons, I should say had, because a few years back, uh, one of them committed suicide. Uh, my cousin did. And then just a couple of years ago, my uncle Don had passed away, and now, when, uh, for the reason of her writing on this post on Facebook, was because uh, my cousin Stan, uh, as a result of a life of abusing drugs, is now on the threshold of, of dying as well. And uh, so she's 
in, a lot, in the midst of a lot of hardship and struggle. And I just wanted to, to read uh, to you a little bit of her post on Facebook here because in the midst of that hardship and struggle, when you hear those voices of saints speaking God's truth in the midst of that, uh, it, it brings joy and is inspirational in so many different ways. And uh, so it was for me at least, I just wanted to kind of read it as one of those, um, one of those cool things. So anyways, my Aunt Kay wrote, she says, I cannot say that this is an easy place for me right now, for the enemy works overtime to create worry, doubt, and fear all over the place. But I am still learning to work out my salvation. This is key right here. She says, the truth of all of my salvation, not just forgiveness and heaven, but the truth of Christ in me and me in Christ working out what God has placed in me for my everyday living. Holiness is not just being forgiven and looking forward to heaven. Holiness is about what God is doing in her and us right now. And she said, this is where I need it so desperately. This is where I am learning more and more to depend on God, living from the place of his victory over the troubles and heartaches of this world instead of striving to get victory. Did you hear that? Living a place of Christ's victory over our troubles and hardships instead of striving from a place, humanly speaking, of trying to gain victory over them. Christ is victorious. He has redeemed the hardship and struggle. She goes on to say, it's called resting from my ways of handling life and depending on him and his ways. It's called having the mind and attitude of Christ, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, on Jesus' way to the cross through trial, and, uh, through trial and rejection, he believed his Father, and that's faith. He carried his faith all the way knowing that faithfulness, knowing the faithfulness of the Father. And I trust, I wait on him because I know he loves, but I still seem, uh, it still seems that he works so slow. Have you noticed but God, he is very thorough. Yet in the stillest of my soul, I will trust in him. That brought one of joy to my heart on Facebook. I don't think it redeemed all of Facebook, but it redeemed at least that day's worth of Facebook posts there. And I pray that, you know, where before we may have found ourselves running from hardship and struggle after reading through and studying First Peter, I hope we can instead find ourselves running to God, embracing hardship and suffering in our lives as part of God's perfect will and plan for us in this life, and also as evidence of God's purifying work and sanctification, where he's rooting out sin and making us holy and filling us with his joy. And so today, we're going to be uh, expanding on that, you know, that, uh, that idea. We're going to be expanding on it and getting a little bit more focused on what that looks like in everyday practical lives of the Christian. What does holiness look like? Not just, you know, in being saved from our sins and, you know, this new home, that, this dwelling place that God is, is building with his people where we're going to live for eternity. What does that look like in, in this in-between stage, you know, practically every single day of our lives as Christians? And so I would like us to consider today that the way, uh, in the same way that the path of holiness is the path of suffering, God's path of wholeness is also a path of blank. Not going to tell you yet. The same way that the path of holiness 
leads through suffering, the path of holiness also is a path of blank. And I want you to try to listen to it as we read through this passage and see what you would fill in the blank with. I will give you a hint, though, is that we sang about it in one of our songs this morning. I appreciated uh, the songs that Pastor Preston picked out there. And one of the songs said, perfect blank. Don't say it out loud. That's giving everybody else the answer. So hopefully you found 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through 17. And then we're going to start reading. Now before we do, let me pray. Father God, I pray that you will be with us now as we read your word. I pray that you will open up uh, the truths that are packed into that, God. Uh, the truths that divide uh, bone and joint marrow, God. That, just, that it will pierce our soul itself. God, that your word will... Uh, root out sin, that it will help us to conform to, uh, to the image of Jesus Christ, that we will be changed to reflect your glory, Father. And so I pray that you will humble us, uh, that you will uh, help us to understand, to be able to see and understand. I pray that your spirit be working in every one of our hearts individually as we read your word, helping us to, to see and learn and understand and apply your truth to our hearts so that we will not sin against you. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter 2, 11 through 17 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now we're getting into the main text that we're going to be talking about. Be subject. For the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I would like us to consider in the same way that the path of holiness is the path of hardship and suffering, that God's path of holiness is also the path of, you can say it out loud now, submission, perfect submission. Can you believe it? We were singing about submission. We were singing about the submission of Christ, which we are more than happy to sing about. But did you realize that Christ modeled submission for our benefit, for the church to emulate? That gets a little bit harder to talk about, doesn't it? Perfect submission. Dun, dun, dun. You know, if you like those sounds to really know that we're getting into some scary territory you thought suffering and hardship was hard to talk about in relation to holiness. If there's one thing that might be harder and more contrary for us as Christians to talk about in the life of holiness is submission. Submission. I don't think it's a mere coincidence that the first thing that Peter really starts honing in and talking about, practically speaking, when he began with this life of holiness, first thing he really started to talk about after he said, yeah, you're holy, you're a holy nation, a royal people, a people belonging to God, then he's like, submit. Wow. 
The first thing that he really jumps into, practical holiness lived out. What will it look like? Submit. Where he was talking about the conceptual. Again, Peter, he was, tar- he was talking about, you know, holiness and lives of holiness and, and uh, this new, you know, this temple, this holy temple that God was making with pe- his people. He's talking about conceptual stuff, and now he's talking about very practically what this looks like here and today. He has called you to be holy. What does holy living practically look like? And it's not the word that most of us would have chosen. If we would have just opened it up, open for him and said, hey, you know, what does a holy life look like? I could almost guarantee you that no one in here and in most churches would say submission. Submission would not have been submitted. Yeah, thank you. I'm so glad somebody appreciated that. Who, can I see that hand? Who, who practically, thank you. Bless your heart. <laughs> We have the same sense of humor. This is what holy living practically looks like. Submission is used from this point through the rest of uh, 1 Peter like five or six times. It's really, I think Peter is trying to drive this idea into our hearts themselves. And he doesn't, Peter doesn't dance around. I don't know if you know this about Peter, but he's not known for his like delicacy. If he's dancing around, it's with a sword. You know, he's like very direct. He's, and there's no difference here in this passage. He's not dancing around. He goes right to the heart of the issue. In order to show how essential submission is to the life of the Christian believer and the role it is to play in our lives, Peter hits it directly, head on, and addresses what I believe are three of the absolute hardest arenas that Christians are called to be submissive. Absolute hardness. I think this was true for the Christians in Peter's day, and I think it is most certainly true for Christians today. He's, uh, we have been called to submit in three areas that Peter's talking about here in chapter 2 um, that are, uh, this is kind of the ironic thing. We've been talking about holiness in the midst of suffering. I think the, the dot we need to connect is the places that God is calling us to submit, these areas, There are three areas that sometimes are the most responsible for the suffering that we incur in our lives. Does that seem a little bit ironic, interesting? The three places that Peter really hones in on that God is calling us to submit are the same three places that are responsible for a lot of the suffering and hardship in our lives that God has called us to walk through for his honor and glory. Peter, at, he, he tells us, be subject to, verse, think 13 when it starts off, he says, be subject to, very first one, says, to your governing authorities, the human institutions, and he, he brings that out, whether it's to the emperor or whether it's to the governors, be subject to human institutions. You know, I, this is not an easy one. Uh, you know, we, we t- guys, you know, we like to talk a lot about how hard it is for, you know, uh, girls sometimes, ladies to sometimes submit in marriages and other places. But, you know, we don't talk a whole lot about how hard this is for guys in particular. If you read guys' Facebook pages, you know, for the guys who actually go and bother writing, submission to governing authorities is a struggle. You'll see this coming up in guys a whole lot. You know, you see ladies in marriages talk about how hard it is to submit in that context. But guys in government is very difficult. For us, 
in America. We're struggling with our government, and, you know, it's, it's a struggle, and we're like, hey, they might take our Second Amendment rights away. They might take our guns. You know, and I'm not trying to get all political or say anything with that. I'm just making a point. Back then, you know, and during Peter's day, the government might take more than they didn't have guns, you know, spear maybe. They were taking people's lives on a more, much more regular basis. The abuse of rights was a lot more broad than, than our government has practiced. That might be hard for some to believe, but it's true. So this might be hard for us to wrap our minds around now, but imagine what it was like in a period of time when Nero was reigning in in uh, Rome and other horrible emperors who are actively subjugating Christians to persecution. And so it might be hard for us to wrap our minds around, but try to understand that I don't think it was easier, if anything, it was harder in the context that Peter is teaching from. And so government, submit yourselves to government. Has government ever been a source of suffering and hardship in Christians' lives? Absolutely. Peter knew. He had brothers he had fellow disciples who governing authorities had submitted to death, who had imprisoned. And so I think when Peter is saying this, this is not from a position of an outsider looking in and talking about everyone else's holiness, how important it is for everybody else. I think he was looking internally at his own life and being like, wow, God's used government in this way, even in his own life, to produce holiness. And so Peter hits on government. We're not talking about the second and the third ones today. Pastor Preston has the joy of talking about servants and masters or slaves and masters next week. That's going to be a delight for him to be able to preach that to you. Talking about a hot-button issue. We are 150 years removed from slavery. And if you say anything about anyone submitting themselves to anyone in a free country uh, you want to you wanna get like docs, you want to get, get in trouble with the world around us and get banned from Facebook and Twitter, imply anything having to do with submission to and servants and masters and you'll have whatever you appreciate in life taken away from you in a public setting. You know, it's like they will ridicule, ridicule you. You think it's hard now? Imagine Peter preaching this sermon, writing this letter to people who are not 150 years removed from slavery and bond servants and that sort of thing. They are living in the middle of it right then and there. They are experiencing the hardship and the suffering that comes directly related to being submissive to their masters. Peter is not dancing around the issue. He's hitting it head on. And then the third one, of course, we kind of mentioned already is marriage. Submission in the context of marriage. Ladies, don't answer this out loud, but what's probably one of the key causes of hardship and suffering in your life? Probably the guy you're married to. Eunice, can I hear her name in? Yeah. Thank you for being silent. <laughs> it's true though, isn't it? You know, it's like each one of these you look at and you're like, each one of these are causes for hardship and suffering in life. And Peter picks these out, not because I believe that God has limited us to submitting only in these areas, but because I think they really highlight the degree and serious to which God wants us to understand this idea of submission. Because if we can do in them these ways, we really gain the heart of Christ himself, the perfect submitter, Submitting himself to the point of dying on the cross for us. If we can understand submission in these little tangible ways, we might start understanding the heart of God a little bit better.
or even better, a whole lot better. And so, really, there's not just limit, submission is not limited to these three areas. Later on in chapter 5, Peter talks about submission in the context of the church to elders. We also hear in other places, I think it's Ephesians 5, that talks about how this idea of submission is practiced amongst all believers in the church, one towards each other, no matter who you are or what positions you hold or what titles or anything else. And then, really, I think an argument can be made that submission uh, is really one of the most tangible ways that we show love to other people. How do you love? You know, that's one of those big questions. We know we should love. How you've been called to love, God tells us exactly what love looks like and how to practice love. And we're going to see that submission is one of God's main ways that he's demonstrated love through Christ and how he wants us as Christians to demonstrate that love towards others even in the hardest context for us to show love, he has called us to also be submissive in the way that we show love. So love and submission go hand in hand. So before we really jump into the meat and the heart of this passage, I want us to consider this context a little bit. Peter had just affirmed the Christians. He said, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people that belong to God. You are sojourners and aliens in this foreign land. Now, those truths alone could very naturally lead some Christians to conclude that they had no obligation to the people, to the authorities, or the rules and the laws of this world. Uh, be kind of like in a, you know, Americans, I always kind of, uh, sometimes it's not funny, but sometimes it is funny, where Americans go to other countries, and they break the rules of that land, and they get thrown in the, the jail, and they're like, you can't do that to me, I'm American, I'm free, and it's like, no, you're in our land, you abide by our laws, you know, but this kind of like American way of thinking has seeped into, you know, our hearts, I think even as Christians, we are sojourners and aliens in this land that God has called us to. And I think it's very easiest to think that because, uh, you know, we are, we are free, we are, we are uh, citizens of a, this, this uh, totally different citizenship, you know, in heaven, that we don't have the same oblig- obligation and responsibilities to the people and laws and rules of this land. And it could be very easy for young Christians or immature Christians to misconstrue other, this and other passages of Scripture. You know, I think about like Galatians 5.1. I'm not sure if this was necessarily in circulation over in this part of the, uh, you know, cr- uh, the Christian world at, by this time. Uh, but Galatians 5.1 said, It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Does anybody like channeling like Braveheart right now? Like freedom! This whole idea, Freedom! Freedom! You know, do you kind of hear that in that passage a little bit? Or maybe Psalm 119, which was certainly around at this time. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. Young and immature believers, I think, could have very easily been drawn to this nationalistic, political idea of freedom. After all, isn't that what Israel was being like they were, they were wanting, they were desiring that this Messiah who would come and rescue them would give them what? Nationalistic, political independence and freedom. That's what they wanted. 
And I think Peter is, is dealing with this really, this, you know, subcurrent that's going on in the hearts and the minds of whether it's, you know, the Jews uh, who still had this expectation or whether it's, uh, you know, from young Christians who have read these passages, whether in the Old Testament or some of the letters that have floated around about freedom, that they might have misunderstood that this freedom is a nationalistic political freedom. That this has everything to do with, with Christ dying for our rights, for our human, our unalienable God-granted rights. That's tricky because when you start reading Scripture about our unalienable God-given rights, you don't see our Constitution. I'm not trying to speak against our Constitution. Don't get me wrong. But what God talks about as our rights as Christians is very different than what our Constitution has, has written. So we see this, you know, this very, I think even back then, and, and I think it's true of today, this idea that, you know, we want our freedoms, we want our rights, and there is no government that has the right or authority to be able to infringe upon those rights. Benjamin Franklin, it was interesting, I was reading, uh, when I was studying through this, uh, I was reading about Benjamin Franklin because you know, he was instrumental in the founding of our country and developing a lot of the ideas and concepts uh, that have really defined America as we are today. And he's a respected man, and he did a lot of really cool things, and he did a lot of not really cool things too. But Benjamin Franklin, he was instrumental. I shouldn't say instrumental because this one was, he, he didn't actually, um, his idea didn't actually come to fruition. But they were designing the American seal. Okay, did I say seal right that time? Seal? It's not a seal, it's a seal, right? So I can't say it correctly. You know what the American seal, seal is? It's that, that round, you know, American seal with the, the eagle kind of going like this, and he's holding that shield. He's, uh, the eagle has some arrows and one, uh, you know, talon, and then he's got some branches and foliage and another one. I don't know what they all mean, but that's kind of the American seal. I did not realize there was a backside to the seal. Apparently, only the President of the United States who stands behind the seal has seen the backside of the seal. Has anybody seen the backside of the, the American seal? Yeah, that makes me feel good. Deer hasn't even seen it. Yeah. So apparently, there's a backside to the seal of the United States that they were making. They were debating on how to make this. And Benjamin Franklin had proposed a design for it. And what he was wanting uh, us to do on the backside of the seal was to have a picture of, of uh, Pharaoh and his armies going through the middle of the Red Sea with the waters up on both sides. And then he wanted off to the side this picture of Moses with outstretched hands with a light, light beams coming down from a pillar of fire in the midst of clouds coming down, shining on Moses. You get the picture from the Old Testament there, right, of what Benjamin Franklin was proposing. But then he wanted this to be the motto on the back. He wanted to say, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. That's what Benjamin Franklin proposed. Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Wrong verbiage. We have to wrestle with the idea of, is that really true? 
Because even though that didn't make it onto the back of the American seal, I think that idea has been built into our Constitution. We have a constitutional responsibility. When our government becomes oppressive in any sort of way, we have a constitutional responsibility to what? Overthrow them. That is our rights, constitutionally even, to do that. Benjamin Franklin and the other founding fathers built that into the system. You know, and, and there's all these reasons why. But we have to stand back and say, okay, it's in the Constitution, but is that a biblical way of thinking for us as Christians? That's a very different question entirely. You might not know this about Benjamin Franklin, but he was not a Christian. He was a deist. He believed in God. He did not believe in the God of the Bible. And I think that becomes apparent in the way that he said obedience to God uh, uh, when he said rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God, it shows that he believes in God, but it does not reflect the God of Scripture. These are hard things to talk about, but these are true. Because remember, perfect submission is what God demanded of Christ. and Perfect submission is what God demands from each one of us. And Peter's starting to spell in very specific ways about what that looks like in the hardest sort of ways for us. Now, to be clear, these passages that talk about freedom, they're not talking about political or social freedoms. They are talking about a freedom from the law of sin and death. When Scripture's talking about the freedom that Christ purchased for us who are standing underneath the blood of the cross, it is not political and social freedoms and rights. It's talking about this law, freedom from the law of sin and death, a freedom that is far more valuable and precious than all the freedoms that have been defined and guaranteed by this United States Constitution. We, have, uh, we can have, and this is, I think, the harsh reality, is have you ever thought about this? We can have all the freedoms that this world can possibly offer and still be slaves. Have you wrestled with that? You can have, everyone in this world can have all the freedoms that this world could possibly, as much as it can with all of its powers, uh, you know, guarantee you. You can have every single one of those and still be a slave. And conversely, we can be bound and enslaved and devoid of every single one of our inalienable earthly rights and freedoms, and yet at the same time be more free than everyone else. Have you stopped to consider that truth? Because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What do you think God is more concerned with? Your political and social freedoms? That even if you have, you can still be dead? Or your eternal freedom that though you lose everything in this life, you've won? What's more important to God? Freedom in the Bible cannot and should not be defined by, bound to, or limited by our constitutional freedoms. Because Christ died for a freedom that all the people in the world, though every, should, every person should die, could not possibly purchase. We die for temporary freedoms 
and people have to keep dying for them. We are never truly free. But Christ died once and for all for the permanent and ultimate freedom, the freedom from sin and death. I don't want you to get me wrong. I'm thankful, I'm so thankful for the freedoms that we do have in our nation. I'm thankful for the people who have died for those freedoms that we enjoy and appreciate. But those are not the freedoms that Christ died for. And if you think they are, passages like the one that we're going to read through, you know, that we're talking about today and that Pastor Preston's going to talk about next week are going to be very difficult passages for you to reconcile. So this passage, I think, it is addressing this tension that must exist within uh, the Christian life. It's a tension that has to be there. It affirms two things that don't seemingly, in our earthly wisdom, two things. It's affirming two things are existing at the same time that don't seem like they can possibly go together, and yet they do. This tension is mentioned in two verses in the passage we just read. Verse 16 says, live as people who are free. Yeah, you know that, that's, if you want to say amen, that's a great spot to say amen. Yeah, live as people who are free. Uh, you know, I think this is talking like we just said. It's talking about, you know, that freedom we have in Christ from the law of sin and death. But I think there's also an element that Peter is talking to people who are literally free peoples in a political, social sense. Next week, Pastor Preston is going to be talking about slaves to masters, servants to masters. And those are people who are very much not free in that sense, and they've been subjected to these, their masters. They've been called to be submissive too. Peter, in the, in, before he's even talking to, on that side of things, he's talking to people who are literally probably free. They have not been subjected to the same way that slaves and bondservants had during that time. And so, Peter is saying, live as people who are free, but then in verse 13, he says something else. Be subject to every human institution. That's where everybody says, boo. You know, live as people who are free. Yay! Be subject to every human institution. Boo. And we've got these within verses apart, and it's like, how do you bring these two together? How can they possibly make sense? I don't know. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't when you first look at it. It's like, how can you live as people who are free and yet be subject and be submissive to? Do you feel the tension? I'm feeling it just by your looks. <laughs> to relieve some of this tension, I want you to know that I'm not going to try to unravel everything that happened during COVID. The tense relationship between churches and governments and between Christians also ourselves. There's a lot of tension with this topic that came up. And I'm not trying this warning to unravel all of those complexities. We don't have enough time to talk through all of that. But what I do hope to accomplish is show you that the biblical submission, that biblical submission is a huge part of the path of holiness. It's part of the refining process of what God is doing in us it helps us to gain the mind of Christ, and it is also a practical way that we show love and is one of the most tangible and real-life ways that we live out the gospel in front of people. We don't have to just go give tracts. We love and we submit. God has shown us practical ways that are way more effective of living out the gospel 
that jive with, that, that reinforce the gospel that we are also preaching and speaking at the same time. They must go together. I want to read through a couple of um, definitions of submission. In the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it says, Submission is the condition of being submissive, humble, or compliant, an act of submitting to the authority or control of another. In the Strong's Concordance, it defines submission as this, to subordinate. I really like this one. You could even write this one down. It's one of my favorites. It says, to reflexively to obey. Reflexively to obey. That's what submission is. So reflexively, like you hit your knee what you're, you know, when you're on the side of the table dangling over to the table for the doctor. He hits your knee, your knee reflexively kicks, right? Submission is when our reflex as Christians is not to kick back, but to submit. That's what submission is. Reflexively to obey and submit. To be under obedience Put under, subdue unto, subject unto, to be put in subjection to, or submit self unto. And I really think that last one is another great definition of biblical submission. Submit self unto. Those are good definitions, but I think this is the ultimate definition. My Aunt Kay had mentioned this in her letter on Facebook, on her post. But I think this is defining the attitude of submission in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. It says, Indeed, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Though he, by nature, uh, though he was by nature God, he did not consider equality with God as a prize to be displayed. Meaning, Jesus is God. He, Jesus is God. In nature, he is God, he's part of the Trinity, he's God himself, and Jesus, being God, is sovereign over all of creation. They made all of creation, God himself made it all. There is no one more free, more sovereign than God himself and his son Jesus. There's no higher definition of freedom than Christ and who he is. And this is who we're talking about. The most free of free entities, Jesus, emptied himself by taking on the nature of a servant. That seemed kind of extreme, though. When he was born in human likeness and his appearance was like that of any other man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That is the definition of submission. That is what God is calling us to. This is the biblical definition of submission. This is key. It is not contrary to freedom. In fact, it demands a starting point of freedom. That is what makes submission so powerful. Biblical submission is so powerful because it is voluntarily and freely done out of a heart of love. That's why submission in the world devoid of love is so abusive and wrong and twisted and messed up. But when we submit from a place of freedom, we are doing it out of a heart of love the same way that Christ did in his perfect submission on the cross for us. 
Worldly submission is forced and acted out begrudgingly. Biblical submission is voluntarily done out of a love for God and for others. Love is the motivation for submission that leads one to give up their own rights and sacrifice them for the good of others. That is not the American way of thinking, but it's biblical. Willingly from a position of freedom, humbling oneself, taking on the nature of servant to the point of being willing to die. Christ set the example This is the attitude that Jesus demonstrated that led to his death on the cross and is also the attitude that we have been commanded to emulate as Christians. Now, when Peter instructs Christians to practice submission to the governing authorities, it should come as no surprise. It's because that's exactly what Christ did in his life, like we've talked about. Who did Christ submit himself to? Ultimately to God. When he was in the garden of praying, he said, when he was praying to God the Father, he said, not my will, but your will be done. He was submitting himself first and foremost to God. But then Christ submitted himself to governing authorities. Jesus surrendered himself to the soldiers. Did those soldiers, did they have the physical power to be able to overpower Christ who had angels, hosts of angels at his commands? No, they didn't. Did they have the power to take him? No. I mean, even his disciples, that's Peter with a sword comes out, dancing away, ready to defend Jesus. And Jesus said no, because he knew that in a submission to Christ, he must submit himself to the authorities for the sake of the gospel. And he told Peter Peter to put the sword away. He submitted himself. Why? Because in submitting himself to the governing authorities, he submitted himself to God. At the core, uh, John 19, 10 through 11, it says uh, this. It's talking about when Pilate uh, is, uh, is talking with Jesus and he's trying to figure out what the, the hubbub is about. Well, you know, what, what's the problem? What's going on here? And, and uh, you know, and Jesus is in change, brought before Pilate, you know, almost ready to be tried. And uh, Pilate is saying, you know, to Jesus, he's like, why don't you talk to me? I have the power, I have the authority to set you free and the authority to kill you. And Jesus said, he didn't say, no, you don't. You know, he didn't start like doing all this. He said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. He didn't say you don't have this authority. He said the only reason you do have this authority because Jesus was crucified is because God granted it to the government for this purpose. Praise God. Because that is the gospel and how it happened. At the core of this is why we submit to governing authorities, because their authority is from God. We do not submit because they are right or good or fair or holy. We submit because they are appointed by God. I thought it was kind of interesting. I was reading a a sermon by a pastor named Bob Diffenbaugh. And uh, he was talking about, he he was like, I He's telling a story. He's like, it's driving down the road, saw this car that had a bumper sticker. On the back of the bumper sticker, it said, obey God's laws, not man's. Every American says, yeah, you know, honk, honk, thumbs up, high five, as they're going like 95 down the interstate. 
This is what he had to say, though, and I thought it was interesting. He says, this has kind of a pious ring to it, doesn't it? Because we're like, hey, you know, God's law is not man. Honk, honk. Has a pious ring to it at first glance, but a serious problem exists in the thinking which underlines this proposition. The error is assuming a significant conflict between man's laws and God's laws. Paul did not think, uh, so that error is assuming the significant conflict between man's laws and God's law. Paul did not think so, neither did Peter. The biblical perspective is this obey man's laws as God's laws. Obey man's laws as God's laws. John Piper said this. I thought he named a, a, one of his podcasts this. He was like, obeying the speed limit is worship. <laughs> Got to be kidding me. Obeying the speed limit is worship. That's the connection we have to make as Christians is obeying man's laws to the full degree that God has called us to with those few exceptions where we can't possibly, and there are exceptions, we're going to talk, actually we're not going to talk a whole lot about it today because we're running out of time already. But that's what God has called us to, obey man's laws as God's laws as much as we are possibly able to. So we do not submit because they are right or good or fair or holy. We submit because they are appointed by God. Romans 13.1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. Do you hear the potential for Christians to sin within this? If we're not cautious and careful, if we're being, you know, if we're, we're riding into battle being like, you know, um, overthrow the tyrannical government, do you hear the potential for sin that lies at our doorstep if we follow that line of thought too far? I shouldn't say too far if we follow it at all. God has called us as Christians to practice submission to those that he has put in authority over us. That's why in 1 Peter 2.13 it says, be subject for the Lord's sake, for his honor and glory, for the purpose and will and plan that he has in life for the gospel and for your life to demonstrate the gospel. That's why Jesus submitted. That's why God has called us to submit. It's because there's a reason and purpose at stake, and the reason and purpose is nothing less than the gospel itself. So again, there are biblical limitations for our submission to governing authorities, and uh, we're not going to talk about that because, uh, one, uh, we don't have time, two, because it's not directly stated in this passage of Scripture, and three, because Christians are already exceptionally good at finding exceptions. I don't want to help you out anymore But it is interesting to, interesting to note that Peter himself disobeyed governing authorities two times at least. Some would say maybe four. Two times. The high priest, Senate, the, the, the governing authorities told Jesus and John and other disciples even, they said, do not speak or preach in the name of Jesus. They told him that both times. Acts 4, he responded, he and John responded and said, we cannot speak, stop speaking of what we have seen and heard. It is impossible. When we talk about, you know, 
you know, I obey God's laws and not man's. This is God's unbreakable law, is that we cannot, let me make sure I get all of my negatives right. We cannot not share what Jesus has done. Did I get them right? We must share the gospel. The two times that he disobeyed, it was a, I cannot not share the gospel. I must share the gospel. The two other times that some people would say that he disobeyed the government um, would be when he broke out of jail. Now, just to be clear, Peter did not use a file. Um, you know, he wasn't bribing the guards. He didn't beat anyone up. No one was harmed in the filming of him leaving the jail. It was miraculously done in both instances. One, an angel led him out of prison. Two, he was in the middle of a dream, and uh, he didn't even know he was leaving. He, he showed up, you know, he, he got loose. And so I look at that as kind of exceptional instances of God freeing him, and not necessarily Peter trying to, of his own will, go and disobey the governing authorities. But isn't it interesting? When, when we really look and see when God's people are disobeying governing authorities, it's really a gospel issue in silencing the gospel. That's at the heart of it. So again, while there are exceptions, what should our reflex as Christians be? It's to obey and to submit. So God has willed that we go through suffering and in running, in the same way in that running from suffering, we can be running through God's purifying sanctification process in our lives. In the same way, uh, God has willed that we submit to governing authorities. And when we don't submit to that, we can actively be fighting against God's direct, explicit commands for us as Christians in our lives. We can be fighting against the will of God. And again, looking at Christ, I'm glad that Christ submitted himself to the governing authorities at that time because without that, we wouldn't have had the gospel. He submitted because God had a plan that was bigger than his personal rights and freedoms in a political and social sense in this world. That is the gospel, and that is the same exact gospel message that God has called us to live out. Now, I personally think it would have been a lot easier to get people to like the Bible if God had left out submission out of it. You know, I think a lot more people, I mean, it's already the bestseller, but I think it would have been the best, best, bestseller of all time if submission, I mean, non-Christians would probably start reading it more if it didn't talk about submission. Why does God focus so much and hammer on submission? Well, let me ask you this. What is the opposite of submission? Does anybody know? Feel free to say it out loud. Rebellion. Yeah. I think that's why it matters to God so much. Because if we don't submit, the only other option is that we're living in rebellion. Satan didn't submit. He rebelled. Adam and Eve, they didn't submit. They rebelled. You and I, if we don't submit, we've rebelled. Rebellion in our society and our world is expected. I can't tell you how many times that I've heard you know, parents talk about their kids and going through these rebellious phases and being like, ah, oh, it's just a phase. It's okay. It's natural. It's normal. It is naturally and normally 
sinful, evil, and wicked, but we've accepted it as being a normal part of an expected part of, you know, the way we live and grow. But it's not. Our society, rebellion is actively encouraged. Ask Pastor Preston this week if you ever heard of a song of, we ain't going to take it. He's like, what? And I was like, you know, no, actually, I think I started off and said, have you ever heard of the band Twisted Sister? And, uh, and he's like, no, I don't know, like, who on earth is that? And uh, for me and my generation, raise your hand if you're from the 80s. Yeah, I might have heard that. Yeah, there's this song of this band being like, we ain't going to take it. That's pretty good. <laughs> Randy, we'll do a, maybe a duet a little bit later here. But, you know, we, we, you know it's, it's actively encouraged in our society. We ain't going to take it anymore. I remember the video of this is a, a father coming into his, his kid's bedroom and like tell him to clean up your room. And the kid starts singing, we ain't going to take it. We rebel. I could go through on and on about all the other artists, whether in Hollywood or singers. You know, it's like, you know, James Dean, rebel without a cause, or, you know, Elvis Presley pushing all, you know, every generation has their rebels of that time. And we idolize them. You know, NWA, Rage Against the Machine, Public Enemy, you know, go all through these modern bands. I thought it was interesting. Even Garth Brooks, not even country, is uh, immune from having this rebellious undertones. I shouldn't even say undertones. It's overtones. Actively encouraging rebellion in, in us and our kids. It's admired and glorified. But the scriptural view of rebellion to show how important it is that we wrestle with this and we understand how, how much at the root and heart of evil and sin it is. I think if we look in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 28, 21.8, I think it says that if you have a kid who is in rebellion, what were they supposed to do in the Old Testament? Stone them. Now we look at that and we're like, that is harsh. That doesn't make any sense. I think part of that is because we accept, we expect and encourage and glorify rebellion. And so a passage like that in the Old Testament blows our minds, doesn't it? But when you understand that rebellion is at the root and heart of all sin, murder, you know, and all these other things that we accept as bad, then all of a sudden you're like, wow, I see how rebellion is really at the root of a lot of the, the, the sin that we are part of personally and even corporately as churches in America. And in the New Testament, 2 Peter 2, 9 through 10 says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. That's the good news, right? We talked about going through hardship and trials. He knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteousness, the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Okay, talking about keeping the unrighteous under judgment he says, and especially those who indulge in the lust of the defiling passion and those who despise authority. This is in 2 Peter. Peter falls up to the first Peter here and says, God's judgment and wrath is especially being held up and ready to be poured out on those who are, you know, are involved with the defiling passions and those who despise authority. Does submission matter to our God? Yes, and we've got to find every way possible with joy and love to find ways that we can actively submit to our government. 
It's easy for us to find those ways that we shouldn't, but can we find those ways that we can? Because I don't think the, the bar of the world around us is the bar that God has called us to. I think God has called us to submit more in a more tangible and real way that reveals God's glory, that reveals that this isn't normal, this isn't human, something else is happening here, and people will look and be like, oh, their Savior submitted. Look at them. They love. People see our love when we submit. So in order to root out the heart of rebellion, God is actively calling us to willingly and freely practice submission. And we complain a lot of times that our kids are rebelling. But I have to stop and think, is that our fault? Because we, in all these places God has called to, to submit, we are actively living in rebellion. Whether it's to government, whether it's in the home, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in church, or whether it's to each other. If we're actively living in rebellion in all these arenas, we should not be surprised that our kids are rebellious because it now has become an expected result from our own sinful attitudes and actions in our life. And so in closing, verse 16 says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. I can almost hear Peter say, submit. But living as servants of God. Obey. Honor everyone. Oh, honor. Submission. Love the brotherhood. Love and submission. Fear God. Love. Submission. Honor to the emperor. Love and submission. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for evil. Submit, submit freely, willingly, joyfully, out of love, desiring in your small act of submission to point to the ultimate act of submission that Jesus demonstrated on the cross, not just for you, but for the people that you are submitting to.